Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Is it preschool in a blow? I always forget. You know, what, you know it's time to leave now, right, kids? If you're from preschool and below, go to the kids' own worship. Now, adults, if you're tempted to leave, you can't leave. You're not old enough to go, or you're too old to go back there. So, John chapter 7. Uh, we started John chapter 7 last week, and we're going to look at the rest of it this morning. Death Valley in California is considered one of the hottest places on planet Earth. As a matter of fact, the hottest temperature that was ever reached in Death Valley was on July 10th, 1913. Does anybody want to guess how hot it was? 134 degrees, which is also the hottest temperature ever recorded anywhere on the planet. 134 degrees. In the summer of 2001... Areas of Death Valley had 154 consecutive days over 100. We think it's been bad the past couple weeks. In 1996, they had 40 days in a row over 120 degrees. In, from 1931 to 1934, they experienced the driest stretch on record with 0.64 inches of rain in three and a half years. Now, I can't think of anything more miserable than spending time in Death Valley. But, I don't know if you know this, there is a desert oasis called Saratoga Springs that's in Death Valley National Park. And a lot of people go there and they visit and they, there's wildlife. And so in the midst of the hottest place on earth, there is a little oasis. You remember those old commercials or those old movies where the man is going across the desert and he's got the parched lips and he's like gasping and he's, water, water. And finally he gets over the, the hill and he looks down and he sees an oasis and he gets closer and realizes it's a mirage and he gets all upset. Am I the only one that remembers those things? Water. I want you to think about thirst. This morning, how have you have you really ever been thirsty? And most of us Americans probably never have really been thirsty. We have opportunities to get drinks all the time. You can go across the street to Walmart, get flavored drinks, get bottled water, get tap water. We don't really understand thirst the way that those in the ancient Near East during the time of Christ understood thirst, because water was a hot commodity in a desert climate. It was an oasis that was needed in the midst of the desert for people to get drinking water. So I want you to think about water this morning. I want you to think about being thirsty this morning. I want this imagery of being thirsty, of water, to be flowing into your mind as we dive into the rest of chapter 7 because it's very, very important as to what Jesus is going to tell us. Now let's recap what we saw last week as we started in John chapter 7. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And there are two responses to Jesus that both represent unbelief. 
His brothers were not believing in him because they wanted to make him this traveling miracle worker. Hey, go show up at the festival, you know, draw a huge crowd. The Bible says they weren't believing in him. And then the Pharisees and others were wanting to kill him. They hated him. They were filled with animosity. They were filled with hate. And so there were people that were wanting to murder him, and his brothers were wanting to promote him, and both of those were expressions of unbelief. And if you remember, Jesus waits to go to Jerusalem, but halfway through the, the festival, he shows up, and he begins teaching in the temple of all places, in this festival, the, the festival of tabernacles. And if you remember in verse 24, Jesus says, make a right judgment. Make a right judgment. Now, what is the Feast of Tabernacles? Do you remember? It was a week-long feast. It was one of three feasts that the Israelites had to travel to Jerusalem. There was Passover, there was Pentecost, and then six months after Pentecost, usually in maybe late September, early October, there was the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And for an entire week, they would live in these little shelters. They would build these little tents, and they would put trees, and they would live in those for seven days. And then on the eighth day, the final day, it was a solemn assembly. And so this was the time where everybody came to Jerusalem. It was a huge festival. It was a time of joy. It was a time of celebration. Harvest was over. They They were thanking God for the great harvest that they had. Everything was going on in Jerusalem. And so Jesus has this captive audience with everybody gathered there. He's in the temple, and he's preaching. And he has one main point. Do you want to know what Jesus' one main point is? It's this. There is no middle ground with Jesus. There's no middle ground. He's not going to let you have any middle ground. He's not going to let you ride the fence. He's not going to let you kind of be one foot in, one foot out. Jesus is going to demand all of your attention, all of your affection, all of your obedience. There is no middle ground. And so how's Jesus going to drive this point home? How's Jesus going to confront us with there's no middle ground with him? Well, we're going to see four things in this passage of Scripture from the lips of Jesus that show us how there is no middle ground with Jesus. Here's number one, his mission. Jesus boldly proclaims that he has been sent on a mission from the Father, his Mission. So let's pick up in chapter 7, verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I have come from him, and he sent me. The crowd's a little baffled who Jesus is. Who is this guy? Why is he showing up and teaching in our temple? Obviously, he has authority. He's talking some strange language. And they're asking a legitimate question. What's their question? Where's this guy from? 
Where, how'd this guy show up? Who, who is this Jesus and where is he from? That's a legitimate question, isn't it not? Who is Jesus? Where did he come from? Jesus answers the question openly, boldly. There in verse 26 when it says that he was speaking openly, it meant Jesus was speaking boldly. He was speaking with great freedom and authority. And he says, listen, there's no middle ground. I'm going to tell you who I am and where I came from. Verse 28 Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Jesus' answer, I've been sent by my Father. Sent. It's a key word in the Gospel of John. It shows up over 40 times in the Gospel of John. Jesus has been sent. And it really, the, the word sent there means he's been sent on a mission. He's been sent as an envoy. And so the question then becomes, okay, Jesus has been sent from his Father. What was his mission? What did Jesus come to accomplish? What was his mission to come on planet Earth? Why was he sent? Well, he doesn't explicitly answer it here, but the, the other two Gospels, especially Matthew, um, Mark, and Luke, answer this for us, especially Matthew and Luke. When Gabriel the angel shows up to Joseph and announces the birth of Jesus, what does the angel say to Joseph? Matthew 1, 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for, here's the reason, he will save his people from their sins. Why did Jesus come? Why was he born of a virgin? He came to die on the cross for our sins. That was his mission. He was sent to die on the cross for our sins. I've been sent from the Father to planet Earth to die on the cross for sinners. Luke says it this way in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's Jesus' mission. I've come to seek those that are lost and to save them by dying on the cross for their sins. That's his mission. He's been sent from his Father to come and to die. He's the Messiah. Remember what John the Baptist announced back in chapter 1? John 1, 29? The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is making a bold statement. He's saying, there's no middle ground. I've come from my Father. If you don't want to know where, who I'm from, where I'm from, I'm from heaven. I've come down to earth, and my main mission is to seek you sinners and to save you by dying on the cross. That's my mission. You can't be confused about the mission of Christ. His mission is to come and seek and save the lost. That's his point. There's no middle ground. Now let's continue to see how he drives home this point. We've first seen his mission. I've been sent from the Father on a mission. Let's look at number two, his offer. His offer. In order to go to heaven, you must believe in Jesus. In order to go to heaven, you must believe in Jesus. Let's continue reading. Pick up in verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him. Obviously, they didn't like what he said. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet, many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, he will do more signs than this man has done. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. 
And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Okay, Jesus came to earth. Historical fact. Died on the cross, rose again. We must believe in him. Verse 31. Many believed in him now let me just stop and talk about the word believe because it's over and over again in the the gospel of john to believe in the gospel of john to believe in christ is not just this one time i know in my head who jesus is no the word believe in the gospel of john when jesus says many believed in him when john says that it means you've placed all of your trust you've placed all of your hope You've banked everything, your eternity. You are totally, completely, absolutely trusting, entrusting yourself to Jesus Christ alone to save you. You're putting all of your confidence, all of your hope, all of your trust, everything you are into Christ. But what are the Pharisees doing? They're grumbling. They're muttering. They send the temple guard to go arrest Jesus. Let's shut this man up. He's a threat. Let's send the authorities to go arrest him. But they can't arrest him because it's not God's sovereign timetable. Now, I don't know how God stopped the, stopped the, the guards from arresting Jesus, but it happened. And Jesus looks the Pharisees straight in the eye and says, Listen, I'm going back to heaven. I'm going to be here a little bit longer. I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to rise again. And I'm going to go back to heaven. But you can't come to be with me. You can't come be with me in heaven. Now, this would have been very shocking to them because they were so legalistic and they were caught up in their own rules and religions. But what Jesus is saying is, listen, if you don't believe in me, you can't come to heaven where I am. I'm going to go prepare a place for all those that will believe in me. And if you continue in unbelief, if you Pharisees continue muttering, if you continue wanting to arrest me, if you continue and continue and continue in unbelief and unbelief and never trust in me, guess what? You're not going to make it to heaven. You're not going to be where I am. Where is Jesus right now? He's at the right hand of the Father. He's in heaven, physically, right there. Unbelief will not get you to heaven. It will get you to heaven to hell. Jesus says, you're not going to be able to get there. Now, the people are confused. They don't understand what he's talking about. Basically, they think Jesus is going to go to, a, to another area. What's he talking about? He's, we can't go where he's going. Is he going to go out to the Greek-speaking people and start teaching them? That they're not quite understanding who Jesus is. Jesus is flat out saying, listen, guys, I have come from my Father to earth to die on the cross. I'm going to rise again. I'm going to go back to my Father. Everyone who believes in me can come back to heaven with me. If you do not, you cannot come. You have to believe in Jesus in order to get to heaven. There's no middle ground. There is no second chance after death. Contrary to popular belief, there is no purgatory. There is no hope, and then after you die, you can do some things to work it out. Once you die, you die, and it's too late. There is no opportunity after you die to get to heaven. You must make the choice now, before you die, because after you die, it's too late. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. 
chapter 9, verses 27 through 28. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, how many times does a man die? No reincarnation there, right? Die once. After that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Once you die, that's it. And Jesus is telling them that. I'm going to heaven. You can come to heaven if you believe in me. If you don't believe in me, you can't come to heaven. You cannot be where I am going if you continue in unbelief. That's what he's telling the Pharisees. If you continue in unbelief, you cannot go where I'm going. Where's Jesus going? He's going to heaven. So if you want to go to heaven, believe in Jesus. So we've seen his mission. He came from the Father to seek and save that which is lost. We've seen his offer. You can't go to heaven unless you believe in him. Let's look at the third thing. His gift. His gift. Believing in Jesus will bring ultimate satisfaction to your soul. Believing in Jesus will bring ultimate satisfaction to your soul. Verses 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those believed in were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, I need to explain to you in great detail why this is so important. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. A seven-day feast. And then there's the eighth day, the great and final day. What happens during the Feast of Tabernacles besides people just living in these little shelters? Well, here's what happens. One of the key events is what was called the water parade or the water ceremony. Every morning, people would wait in expectation as the priests would leave the temple. And the priests every morning would leave the temple and they would carry a golden pitcher. And they would carry the golden pitcher and they would go to the pool of Siloam. And they would dip the pitcher in the pool of Siloam, the the river of living water, and they would take the pitcher and they would carry the pitcher back and everybody would follow in this great parade. They'd go back to the temple and they'd pour the water on the altar and everybody would gather in the temple and they would sing and they would pray and they would almost have like a church service. This happened every day. Every day of uh, of the Feast of Tabernacles. On the seventh day, The priest did it seven times that morning. So this was a big deal. This whole water parade, this whole water ceremony, this whole drawing of water from the well and taking the water back to the temple and the joy. And they would pray for rain. They would pour water and they'd pray for rain. They'd thank God for the harvest. They'd pray for rain for the next harvest. This whole water parade, seven days. But then on the eighth day, the final day, there was no water parade. There was no water ceremony. It was a solemn day. It was a quiet day. 
It was the day where people were supposed to stop and reflect and think. There was no big celebration. There was no parade. People were supposed to gather and be very quiet and, and solemn and, and just thinking about God's blessing on their life. And notice what happens there in verse 37. It's on this low-key day after all the water parades happened the past seven days. On the last day of the feasts, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried. The Greek text tells us it was a shout. Now, this would have discombobulated people because what is everybody doing? They're low-key. They're quiet. And this shout rings out loudly. And what does Jesus say? What does Jesus cry out? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. You see, for all these past seven days, it's been about water, it's been about water, it's been about pouring water, it's the the water parade. And finally, on the last day, when all that water stuff's over, Jesus stands up and says, if you want real water, if you want true water, if you want water that's going to satisfy your soul, if you're thirsty, come to me. Notice what he says there, very specific. Look at it in your Bibles. He says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus doesn't say, hey, if you're thirsty, go to the pool of Siloam and get a drink of water. Jesus doesn't say, if you're thirsty, go get the priest to bring you water. No, Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come directly to me and drink of me. He's probably making an allusion to those Old Testament times when God would strike the rock and the water would come gushing out, providing refreshment for the people as they're in the desert. Psalm 78, 15 through 16. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Now let me just ask you a question. What does it mean to thirst? If anyone thirsts. What does it mean? Is Jesus talking about physical thirst? Hey, I need a Gatorade. Please bring me a Culligan. What's he talking about? No, he's talking about spiritual, desperate, hopeless, helpless neediness where you've come to that point where you know in your soul, I am desperate for Jesus. I need him. I am hopeless without him. I am desperate. I am thirsty for Jesus. We don't use that type of language, do we? I'm thirsty for Jesus. The psalmist did. It was their, there was their vocabulary. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 42, 1 through 2. You know these psalms. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My soul thirsts for God. Does your soul thirst for for God. Psalm 63, 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. When Jesus says, come to me and drink, it's just another way of saying, have faith. The metaphor here is that if you come and drink of Christ, if you come and receive Christ, you will receive refreshment. What's the gift that he gives? He tells us what the gift is. When you come and you believe in Jesus, when you drink directly from Jesus, when he quenches your thirst, what is the gift? 
verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Out of your heart, the center of who you are, Christ will cause this internal renewal to happen to where you become a totally new person filled to the brim with all that Christ has to offer you in his spiritual satisfaction. It's very similar to Isaiah 12.3 is probably what he's quoting there. Isaiah 12.3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Jesus promises to absolutely and totally quench your spiritual thirst, your sin, your guilt, your need, your desperation. Only He can quench it. Only He can satisfy. There's a lot of things in this world that you are trying to find satisfaction in, and it will not satisfy. Jesus is the only one that can fill the soul. That's what He says here. Now, he's very specific as to the identity of the living water. John gives a little commentary. Okay, this is no longer Jesus speaking. Verse 39 is John speaking. John gives a commentary. Now, this he said about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in were to receive. Now, they, they had not received the Holy Spirit yet because Jesus had not yet been glorified. What's John saying? Here, here's the deal. Jesus was still on planet Earth as he was saying this. He hadn't fulfilled his mission. He hadn't died on, his cro- on the cross. He hadn't been glorified in the sense that he had not died, rose again, and gone back up to the Father, and the Holy Spirit poured, poured out on Pentecost. And so there's a little commentary here that John says, listen, that the living water that Christ gives you is ultimately the Holy Spirit poured out in your soul and salvation to totally transform you from the inside out, to come live inside you. Think about this. The reality of salvation is God himself comes to live inside of you as the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16 through 17, later on, Jesus teaches this in more detail. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So what is that river of living water that, the, that, that Christ promises to satisfy you with? It's nothing less than the Holy Spirit of God himself living in you, producing his fruit of the Spirit in you, producing life in you, giving you this internal transformation, changing you from the inside out, making you a brand new person. So here's the question. Jesus came on a mission. He accomplished the mission. He offers salvation and he offers his gift. Have you received the gift? Do you have living water flowing in your heart because you have come and drunk from Christ? If you haven't come to drink from Jesus, drink from Jesus now and receive that gift. He will make you into a new person. The way Paul says in 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Are you a new person? Because you've drunk from Christ and he's given you the gift of the Holy Spirit to make you new. Living waters flowing out of your soul, out of your heart. Okay, so there's no middle ground with Jesus. Number one, his mission. He came to seek and to save the lost. He was sent on a mission from his Father. Number two, his offer. 
in order to go to heaven, you must believe in him. Number three, the gift. The gift of, the, of salvation, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of living waters flowing in your soul, the gift of, of, of having your spiritual thirst quenched by Jesus. So there's, there's no middle ground. But you see, we're not done yet. Because we need to see what happens to Jesus after he says this. Here's number four. His division. The claims of Christ will always bring division. You cannot remain neutral in front of Jesus. He's going to cause a response, a reaction, oftentimes division. Let's see this play out in the rest of the chapter. Verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to him, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he, has, what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now I'm sure on this eighth and final day, when everybody's supposed to be quiet, and Jesus stands up and yells out, Come to me for living water. It created a buzz. You, you can't just sit back and say, well, that's, that's, that's interesting. No, you're going to respond to something like that. How dare Jesus come and interrupt our festival? Who has the gall to stand up and say, come to me and drink? Jesus was, in fact, making himself better than the priests that were carrying those golden pitchers. He was, in fact, making himself better than the entire festival itself. Jesus was standing above everything that was about that festival saying, come to me, and it created division. Three, sorry, three types of division. Three types of division that we see. Here's the first type of division. Conversion. This is good division. Verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. There were some there that believed in Jesus. They were converted. They trusted in him. They came to him and drank. They placed their faith in him. They saw him as the Messiah. They were converted. They were convinced. They became Christians on that day because they placed their trust in Christ. That's one type of that's a good type of division. That's the one we want. But here's the second response. Curiosity. Look at verse 41. Others said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem? The village where David was? Curiosity. Could this be the Messiah? I'm not really sure. I need to investigate more. I need to get more facts. I'm curious about this Jesus fellow. Where is he from? I need to hear more. I'm not convinced yet. I haven't placed my faith in him, but I'm curious. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with being curious. There may be some of you here this morning that you are not yet fully convinced of who Christ is and you're curious. I I showed up today to kind of fill these things out. I'm still trying to figure this out. I, I don't know quite who Jesus is. I'm still investigating. I need a little bit more facts. I need, to, I need to ask more questions. That is perfectly fine. That is great. We are so glad that you're here today, quote unquote, checking Jesus out. But can I just give you one warning? One little warning. You do not know what may happen when you walk out of this place. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed another breath. And while you're curious and while you're checking Jesus out, the real issue is, are you going to cross over the line and trust him today for salvation and be converted? Not just curious, but converted. So we've seen conversion. There were people that believed in Jesus. Curiosity, hey, I, wanna, I don't know who this guy is. I need some more information. But here's the third one. Contempt. We saw it last week. Hatred. Verse 43, there was a division among the people. Some of them wanted to arrest him. The Pharisees and the chief priests hated Jesus. They wanted him arrested. And they sent the temple guard to go arrest Jesus. And when they come back empty-handed, the Pharisees are like, how come you didn't bring him back? You were supposed to go arrest this man and you come back empty-handed. What's the answer of the, of the, chief, or what's the, answer of the, of the temple guard? They were mesmerized by Jesus' teaching. We've never heard a guy speak like this. We were so wrapped up in his teaching that we kind of forgot to arrest him. And the Pharisees are like, you guys have been deceived too. We, we hate this guy. We need to kill him. We need to plot his death now. Now, who steps up to the plate and defends Jesus? Nicodemus. Look at your Bible. Look there in verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, was one of the Pharisees, said, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Now remember back in chapter 3, who was Nicodemus? Nicodemus was the Pharisee, the teacher that came to Jesus at night, probably because he was scared of these other guys. And it was to Nicodemus that Jesus said, You must be born again. The whole, you must be born again. And what does Nicodemus say? Listen, guys, we have a rule of law. Innocent until proven guilty. We can't just go arrest Jesus without giving him a fair trial, without giving him a fair hearing. Let, let, let's, let's do a little bit more investigation. Guys, let's not jump to arresting him. Let's, let's hold our horses here. We're men of law. Let's be reasonable. Let's not go arrest Jesus. So Nicodemus steps up for Jesus, and they get mad at Nicodemus. And they say, listen, go search the scriptures to see that no prophet ever comes from Galilee. You're the, you're the big head honcho teacher Nicodemus, you know your Old Testament, Nicodemus. If you go back and look, you'll realize that in the Bible, no prophet ever came out of Galilee. Go search it, Nicodemus. Well, they were actually wrong because Jonah was from Galilee, Elijah was from Galilee, and Nahum was from Galilee. But see, at the core of their being, they were expressing this hatred of Jesus, this self-righteous attitude the superiority, and really I think they feared Jesus. They feared him because he would take away their power, supposedly. But it was not yet his time. It wasn't God's sovereign timetable for Jesus to go to the cross, and so they didn't arrest him. So there was conversion, there was curiosity, there was contempt. But see, here's the huge irony for these Pharisees and these scribes and these religious leaders. Here's the the, the irony. They knew their Bibles. 
They went to church. They were moral. They were upright citizens. They tithed. They gave to the poor. On outward appearance, you would look at the Pharisee and say, that is a godly person, a moral, upright person. On all outward appearances, that person looks like they're right with God. But what's the problem with the Pharisees? In their heart, they had no living water. They were just like Death Valley in their hearts. Dry, parched, shriveled, angry at Jesus, blind to their need to come to him because they're thirsty. They're plotting his death. They have not experienced the transformation that comes from living water. But yet on the outside, they thought they had it all figured out. I'm moral. I'm good. But yet on the inside, flowing from their heart, they hadn't Christ. They they did not have Christ in their life. Jeremiah 2.13 gives a very interesting metaphor or picture of what oftentimes we try to do. Jeremiah 2.13. My people have committed two evils. What are the two evils? Number one, they've forsaken me. You turned your back on God. And number two, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out or they've made cisterns or wells for themselves, broken cisterns, broken wells that hold no water. Do you see the imagery that Jeremiah is saying here? Here's the imagery. All of us know we need to be satisfied by something. And in our attempts to try to satisfy ourselves, we will go build our own little well. But it's a broken, stupid, ugly mosquito-infested, snagnet well that holds no water, and we're just sitting in there enjoying it. Get the image in your mind. You are sitting in a cesspool of gnats, and you think that's what's going to give you satisfaction. That's what Jeremiah is saying. That means you've turned your back on, on Christ. Where does true satisfaction come? Do you build the well? Do you dig it for yourself? No. You're not called to do anything yourself. What are you called to do? What's the only thing required of you? Be thirsty. Be thirsty. And when you're thirsty and you come to Jesus and you drink, what does he give you? Instead of a well that doesn't hold water, he gives you living water to well up in your heart for eternity through the gift of the Holy Spirit. You can never satisfy yourself. And the things that are substitutes for Jesus will never satisfy you either. Here's the lie of Satan. The lie of Satan is that those things will satisfy you. And here's the problem. They do satisfy for a period of time. They will give you pleasure for a season. But it's not lasting joy. And what you and I need is lasting joy deep in our hearts that only Christ can give. Not a man-made well over here that doesn't hold water, that we've built ourselves, that we're trying to satisfy ourselves with all these things. There is no middle ground with Jesus. You can't walk out of this place and be ambivalent towards Christ. Now, you may play the game in your head that you are, but ultimately, in your heart of hearts, you cannot walk out of this place and just, and, and just be ambivalent. Be, be, well, who cares? You've got to make a choice. You've got to nail it down. There is no middle ground with Jesus. Now, you may be curious. You may hate him. 
hopefully you walk out this place converted. But ultimately, you've got to come to grips with who Jesus is today. And the first way that you do that is to admit that you're thirsty. If you are thirsty, then come to Jesus directly and drink. Come to faith in him directly to receive satisfaction for your soul. And what's the promise that Jesus says? You will have a brand new life transformed from the inside out, rivers of living water flowing from your heart to give you new life. So that when Jesus goes back up to heaven, as he's talking here, and prepares a place, when you die, you will have the assurance that you will be in heaven with him because you've believed in him. So would you drink from Jesus today? Because there is no middle ground. And my fear is that there may be some that walk out of this place and they've heard a sermon and they heard a guy talk. But in their heart of hearts, you've been confronted with the living God and his word and you just ignored it and went on your merry way. That would be a tragedy of tragedies. So would you have ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart that's thirsty for Jesus? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. You know if you're thirsty this morning? If you're thirsty for Jesus, would you come to him and drink? Would you cry out in your heart to him to save you, to forgive you, to cleanse you, to change you, and he will. And then some with rivers of living water flowing out of your heart. Jesus, we come before you this morning and I pray we're all thirsty. And Father, there are so many places that we have gone to find satisfaction. There's so many wells that we've dug with our own hands that we think are going to bring us purpose and meaning. And they're broken and they're cracked and they hold no water and they just basically fill up with junk. And somehow we think that's satisfaction. When Christ, you offer yourself as the ultimate source of true living water, true joy, lasting joy, Would we not hear the lies of the world or the lies of the devil, or even the lies of our own flesh? And would we, by faith, come to you, Jesus, today and drink? Lord, there may be some in this room for the very first time that they've never come to you in faith. And today is the very first time that they're taking that step. They're, they're crossing that line. They're believing in you, Jesus. And we pray for those that are in this room that are in that category that, you, that they would come to faith in Christ today. There may be others of us in this room that are just, we're kind of weary, we're kind of stagnant. 
We haven't come to you, Jesus, to drink in a while. We haven't come to the fountain. We've just been doing things in our own power. Would we, during this time, come to you and drink? Lord, I don't want anybody to leave this place thirsty. That would be a shame. Would we leave this place with our thirst quenched and our hearts filled with the joy of the Lord as our strength? Would we walk out of this place, Lord, with rivers of living water flowing from our hearts because of our relationship with you, Jesus? And would it be contagious and evident to those around us? The bubbling spring within us would spring over, spill over to others that they would see the joy that we have. And that Christ, you would be our only source of joy. May we be those type of people this week. Would you do a work deep in our hearts that you can only do by the Spirit? And will we respond with faith and obedience and repentance to whatever you call us to do? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.